As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Baby, this is what you came for. Ladies and gentlemen. Strikes every time she moves. We've reached the end of our European Championship Odyssey. It's 2016, and just like Star Wars, UEFA have made a rogue one. We're in France, and it's 24 teams and six groups of four, and the top two go through along with the four best third-place finishers, separated first by points, then goal difference, then goal scored, then fair play conduct, and if all else fails, the UEFA coefficient. And why did they change it? It was all fine. But if they're changing their format, then we are too. Brace yourself, everyone. We're doing the group stage. All at once. Group A. France very nearly screw up against Romania and then Albania, requiring late goals to beat both. They go through after a goalless draw with Switzerland, who also qualified despite being extremely dull. But are they to be joined by Albania, who celebrate wildly after their victory over Romania grants them third place? Well, we don't know yet because this format is stupid. Group B. Wales beat Slovakia with a Hal robson Carnu winner. Keep an eye on that guy. While England and Russia draw in Marseille, a group of English idiots toss bottles at the Popo and I get chased back to my hotel by a horde of scary Russians. And that's just day one. England go on to beat Wales with a last-minute Daniel Sturridge goal, Russia lose to Slovakia and then get destroyed by the Welsh, while England and Slovakia fall asleep against each other in the centre circle during their dire 0-0 draw. Everyone but Russia goes through. Group C. Germany and Poland glide serenely through to the next round without conceding a single goal. But who joins them there? It's only Northern Ireland, playing their first tournament since 1986. They overcome Ukraine in Lyon, singing their hearts out and drinking the town dry. Group D. Croatia beat Turkey and erase those bad memories of 2008, but then make some all new bad memories when their fans hurl fireworks onto the pitch during their two-all draw with the Czech Republic and a steward nearly loses his fingers. Spain beat the Czech Republic, thrash Turkey, but miss out on top spot when they lose to Croatia. Turkey's 2-0 victory over the Czechs gives them third place, but is it enough for qualification? We don't know, because this format is stupid. Group E. In Group E, a supposedly weak Italy surprise everyone by besting one of the pre-tournament favourites, Belgium, while Ireland pick up their first European Championship point since our story began back in 1988, thanks to a draw with Sweden. Belgium get themselves back on track by thrashing Ireland, while Italy progress with a late win over the Swedes. That means Ireland have to beat Italy to qualify for the next round. 
And they only go and do it, don't they? That kicks off a massive party in Lille, but there's no jubilation in an increasingly discontented Belgium camp. They need a late winner to beat Sweden and qualify, but they don't look right. Group F. Finally, and thanks for sticking with me, it's Group F, where Hungary stun Austria with a 2-0 win and Iceland infuriate Ronaldo when they hold Portugal to a one-all draw. Iceland, they didn't try nothing, they just defend, defend, defend and play in a counter-attack. Portugal then fail to beat Austria and Ronaldo gets really mad, throwing a reporter's phone into a lake. Iceland also draw with Hungary and then surprise everyone by beating Austria with an injury-time winner. Well, notice served. There's no way anyone will underestimate Iceland now. Ronaldo then drags Portugal into the next stage in an astonishing clash with Hungary that sees his side go behind three times before fighting back for parity, a feat he celebrates by refusing to shake any Hungarian hands and trying to dodge the press conference. Portugal, who haven't won a single game, go through in third, because this format is stupid. So, after two weeks and 36 games of football, we've reduced our 24 starting teams to 16. But look now, it's knockout football all the way. The first knockout game brings the first penalty shootout and thus the first penalty shootout villain. Brand new Arsenal signing Granit Xhaka steps up and misses for Switzerland, allowing Poland to clean up. In Paris, there's a British derby as Wales face Northern Ireland. When they played the anthem, it was uh, it was wonderful. Tom Williams is a football reporter and part of the Totally Football Show. It was very emotional because to be a fan of the Welsh national team prior to the Chris Coleman era, really, uh, had just been this this one long tale of misery. I mean, you know, watching Wales in in the mid late nineties when I grew up was just you know constant misery, constant embarrassment. So to the see, see this fantastic team there, you know, with all these fantastic players in the sunshine in a big tournament was was wonderful. And there was a thought for Gary Speed as well. You know, he was the man who had who had started it all. You know, uh, a man who we lost in in such awful, awful circumstances, and, and in a way that 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 felt still very raw at the start of that tournament. The game, though, isn't a classic. There's nothing exotic or exciting about playing Northern Ireland. It was a very sort of British game in many ways, quite physical, quite attritional. Very little of note happened, um, and then with about 15 minutes to go, Gareth Bale pops up on the left, puts in a beautiful cross into the, the corridor of uncertainty uh, and the unfortunate Gareth McCauley turns it into his own net and Wales are on their way to the quarterfinals Northern, Northern Ireland are on their way home and it was pretty much the only thing that happened in the entire match. But it's a veritable Istanbul 2005 compared to what Portugal and Croatia serve up. Neither side manages a single shot on target for 90 minutes. Croatia were probably the most impressive side in the group stage. You know, they were they were a superb side. Tom Kundart is the founder of Portugal. Modric was at his best, Rakitic as well, really in the prime of their careers. And so they were a really, really tough side. And uh, yeah, an absolutely dramatic game, of course. Croatia probably, to be fair, did have the, uh, I'd say, the ascendancy for most of the match. But right at the last few seconds of extra time, fantastic break by Portugal with Probably a lot of their key men uh, involved. Renato Sanchez, of course, had such a great tournament, still just 18 years old at this stage. Starting the break, it went all the way forward to Ronaldo. Ronaldo looks set to score. Brilliant save by the Croatia goalkeeper. Fortunately for Portugal, the ball just popped up and that man, uh, Ricardo Quaresma, 
He's a great friend, of course, of Ronaldo, uh, nodded it in from just about under the bar. And that just sent the Portugal fans in the crowd absolutely wild. Over in Lyon, Ireland face France. And France can't get going. And here we go, early on, Ireland score. And again, it's the same scenario. The Irish leaves the ball to the French and we don't know what to do with it. Julien Laurent is a French journalist and part of the Totally Football Show. And it's the scenario where you think, OK, this is going to be it. Then they will protect their lead, defend well, defend deep. And we will have 80% of the ball or 75% of the ball and, and, and not create anything. And at halftime, we said Deschamps has to change something. He has to do something, go for it, and then see what happens. And that's when the change arrives. That's when he moves to a 4-4-2 formation with, for the first time, really, Griezmann and Giroud playing up front together. And that's, that's the, not just the, the defining moment in that game. This is the defining moment of a generation because this is what will be the winning formula for the World Cup. And this is certainly was the winning formula for, for that game against Thailand because the second half is so much better. Uh, the, the Irish defence can't really deal with the two up front and the two wingers wide. And France scored two goals in a very, not, not too fluky goal, two really good goals in a very dominant second half performance that really starts, starts their tournament. And, and that win against Ireland, it was only Ireland, no offence to them, but only Ireland, but just brought so much momentum and so much confidence to a team that he felt and the players said it after the game in the mix zone like we know now how we want to play we are we have found our way we have found the right formula germany looking typically steady and redoubtable face slovakia the slovakia game was when things started clicking for this germany team they played with a bit more fluidity rafa honigstein is the athletics german correspondent and part of the totally football show mr ozil had a great game muller looked good they they played with a sense of freedom and and yeah fluidity that we hadn't seen in the group stage and it made everyone everyone very very optimistic going into the next round even though it was our very own Bete Noire uh, bogey team the Italians that uh, would be our next opponents. Belgium put Hungary to the sword. Yes, Hungary have just uh, drew with with. With Portugal at uh, the game before 3 3, I think. Christophe Terreur is a Belgian football writer. There were not really a lot of well known players, and I, yeah, it was the, the best game of Eden Hazard at, at the tournament. He dribbled everybody. Yeah, we just won 4 0. It was like the easy win, like we were much stronger, and that game encouraged the, the mood in Belgium that we could definitely win it if you blow away a team in the second round with 4 0 win. You start dreaming. And for Spain, still reeling from the humiliation of 2014, there's no respite. They face Italy. This was probably the best team performance, I think, at the entire tournament. James Horncastle is the Athletics' Italian correspondent. It certainly gave you the belief that they could actually win this thing the way that they had dumped Spain out. It was revenge for, for 2008, revenge for how 2012 had ended, and it was entirely deserved because you know it could have been maybe three four five that they'd scored in that game and uh Chiellini this time uh getting amongst the goals uh, from a corner kick and you just remember Antonio Conte on the sidelines 
uh, in Paris, kicking every single ball. I mean, it's one of the great memes of Antonio Conte, seeing him like almost ripping his trousers and doing like high stepping kicks um, as, 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 as the ball is coming in and out of play, snarling around. It was just, it was magnificent. Darmian, dentro, palla deviata, Graziano! Pelle! Ghiaccio per partita! Ghiaccio per partita! 2-0! And then in Nice, four days after the English decide they don't want to be in Europe anymore, they really double down on that sentiment. It does start well, and... There will be an element of English support that were feeling very confident after Wayne Rooney's early penalty. Yeah, possibly a little too confident. Lindsay Hooper is an English football reporter. Durridge looked great, actually. He provided that lovely curling pass for Sterling to get onto. Sterling didn't do too much else than win this penalty in this match. Stefan Algutson is an Icelandic football writer. The whole nation and, and the players alike were very excited to come up against England. Uh, you know, all the players are very famous in Iceland. The Premier League is the most watched sporting league in Iceland. And there was a general feeling from the England camp that they were not taking this seriously. And I think that probably spurred the players on and the nation. And then Iceland win a throw-in. The long throw from Iceland, from Gunnarsson, had been on repeat. I'd watched it so many times. We were out in France and we'd seen that that was the threat from Iceland. And Roy Hodgson must have. He must have rehearsed. He was an organised coach. He must have got the defenders aware, alert. No, no, no. You know, Iceland had been using these long throw-ins, not just in the tournament, but, you know, are known for them in the qualification campaigns. And they are very hard to to deal with, especially when you have maybe aerial support, uh, superiority. An hour earlier, I'm outside the stadium on ESPN telling the viewers that England need to be really careful about Iceland's throw-ins. The whole back five was over 30, so you had two centre-backs over 30. Uh, one of them jumps up and uh, I think it was Wayne Rooney who went up with him in the air and he nods it on to the back post where the other centre-back uh, taps it in. This is a very known thing that Iceland does. They send it to the top of the box. You, you win the first header and you head it onto the back post. Just being able to do that against England, even though it's, you know, a crappy kind of long throw-in, not beautiful goal, but just being able to do one of those against England was very satisfying because, I mean, you, you, you should know we're going to do that. <laughs> it might have helped if Roy had gone to watch the Iceland-Austria game in Paris, you know instead of taking a boat trip down the Seine instead. Kolpet, the top scorer for the Icelandic national team, uh, went up and had a pretty tame shot that dribbled past uh, Joe Hart in goal. There was obviously pandemonium when that happened. And then it got worse. I don't think I've, I've bitten my nails or been as fidgety in an England match for the remainder of it as I was in that game. It was unreal because you're just thinking, go for it. But then there were some bizarre choices. Towards the end of the game, Wayne Rooney's taken off. And we're thinking, surely you take off a defender here, Roy, and really go for it. There were so many parts of these performances that were just... It was baffling. In the press box, English journalists were now openly laughing at the ineptitude on display. I was one of them. In nearly 40 years of watching football, I genuinely believe, in terms of underperformance... This was the worst display I have ever seen at any level. But Iceland had a wonderful time. Oh, you're 
Andersson með fyrsta merki sitt á EM en ekki það síðasta Ísland 2 England 8 It was fun to be in Reykjavík because uh, there was pandemonium on the streets right after the final whistle blew you can just hear like uh, car horns honking and uh, vuvuzelas blaring and uh, and everyone kind of just walked down to the downtown areas and, and, and the streets were full of people dancing and playing drums and just a, a real light party atmosphere uh, which I've never seen before in Iceland like other than during a parade or something just all of a sudden everyone was just downtown and everyone was so happy it was it was a magical moment and everyone was also in shock and and I, I don't know how often I heard that day that, you know, we already won the Euros. It's over. Like there's, I mean, not that we're gonna win the Euros, but we have already won the Euros. This was the victory that we needed and won. And that was the second round. Let's see how the quarterfinals go, eh? That's next. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. We're back. It's Euro 2016. We're in France and we've only just reached the quarterfinals. So let's go. First up, it's Poland who take the lead through Robert Lewandowski against Portugal who equalise through Renato Sanchez. And so what do we get? Another penalty shootout. But a penalty shootout with a minor difference from last time. Because this time, Ronaldo isn't going to put himself down as fifth taker like he did in 2012 and risk missing out. Ronaldo in this penalty shootout is he's really gone down in folklore, in, in Portuguese football folklore. First of all, of course, he slotted away his penalty, which uh, after the last penalty shootout, which Portugal had lost against Spain in the previous Euro, he'd been criticised a lot for going last, and so he didn't even get to take his penalty. They'd learned from that. He was one of the first to take the penalty. He scored. And then, João Martinho, who had missed in that penalty shootout against Spain, was kind of a little bit reticent, I think we have to say, to take to step up and take it. And there's some very famous footage here in Portugal where Ronaldo is just kind of basically grabbing him by the scruff of the neck and saying, come on, Joao, come on, Joao, uh, giving him a lot of encouragement, saying, come on, you, you know, you're a good penalty taker, you can score. He says, if you miss it, you miss it, uh, with a few kind of expletives and uh, other words mixed in there. And uh, But it certainly had the desired effect because Joao Martinho went up, scored a perfect penalty. All of Portugal's penalty takers scored. Uh, Ricardo Quaresma get, scoring the winning penalty. And yeah, Portugal in the semis. But who would they face? Belgium or Wales? Oh, Belgium, right? A little 
right? which used to be a, a part of, of Flanders uh, many, 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 many ages ago. So basically for some it's still considered as a little bit as Belgium. And Eden Hazard, would, who was the star of, of, of the Hungary game, would return home to Lille, the, the place where he had become a great player. So uh, lots of Belgians, Belgian fans travelled to that game. Hopes were high. We were going to blow away Wales. That was basically what everybody was thinking. As if to prove a point, Raja Nangalan opens the scoring with a... Ooh, I don't know, what would you call it? Thunderbust. I think there was you know, maybe a degree of fatalism at that point. You think, well, if you know, if their players are capable of doing that, and this wasn't even Hazard or De Bruyne or Carrasco or Lukaku, this was, you know, supposedly one of their most, you know, kind of workmanlike players. Not to, you know, not to uh, cast any aspersions about Rajan England's talents as a footballer. You know, you, you did think, okay, well, you know, maybe this is it. But Belgium are missing players. They're more vulnerable than people think. They were playing a game and Mark Wilmot's uh, manager was already thinking about stopping the training session. But yeah, he let it go on for a few more minutes. And then Jan Vertonghen kicks against the ball and suddenly, yeah, he, he collapses and he uh, injures his ankle. So Mark Wilmot had in the build-up to the tournament already lost a Vincent company. Uh, Thomas Vermalen uh, got a yellow card against... Uh, against Hungary, so he was suspended. And then he lost, loses another experienced defender with, uh, with Jan Vertonghen, who's out for the tournament. He, yeah, he did his ankle ligament, so he was out to, so he had to improvise. And then, 10 minutes into the second half, something magical happens. It didn't take long uh, for them to get over the shock, I think, of going behind. And within, I mean, not even 20 minutes, they equalise Aaron Ramsey with a corner, Ashley Williams with a powerful header, and then he tears down the touchline in celebration. Uh, there's a huge embrace with, with some of the substitutes uh, and the support staff, and there's a little anecdote that uh, some of the Welsh data analysts uh, pulled up uh, a stat after the game that Ashley Williams' sprint down the touchline in celebration was the quickest he'd moved in, I think, the entire tournament up to that point. Belgium are broken. The greatest moment, I think, in Welsh football history. As the clock ticks down, Belgium think they've won a penalty. The referee doesn't know, and Wales go on the attack. So it's 1-1, it's one, one, 10 minutes into the second half. Belgium have had a bit of a go at the start of the second half, and Wales are on the back foot, and then Gareth Bale pings a pass over the top to Aaron Ramsey who sort of runs out towards the right hand corner flag turns crosses the ball to the edge of the box it's taken down by Hal robson Carnu. and he's found across Hal robson Carnu. he's turned brilliantly what a goal that is sensational from Hal robson Carnu. and I just remember yeah, you know, you, you, my heart leaping in my chest. This feeling of—I mean, it, it was the—it was a feeling of both utter joy and happiness that that Wales had scored, that Wales were were in front in this crucial game, but also just that the joy of of seeing a footballer produce something so unexpected, so beautiful, you know, so perfect at such a crucial moment, and uh, you know, it sets Wales up to go on and and win the game and. Um, you know, four minutes to go. 
Chris Gunter has the ball out on the right wing and I'm sure everyone's seen the clip from the Don't Take Me Home documentary where Chris Coleman mutters under his breath on the touchline, don't you cross that ball, Christopher. And he, of course, not being able to hear his coach, Julie puts the ball into the box and Sam Vokes meets it with perfect picture book near post header, uh, glancing header that, that goes in the far post. And then it's just in the Wales end behind that goal, absolute bedlam because it's 3-1, there are only four minutes to go. Belgium aren't going to come back and Wales have pulled off the greatest result in their history. In the press box, a Welsh colleague breaks down, burying his face in my back and sobbing snottily into my shirt. In the Belgium dressing room, there are tears too, but they are not happy tears. They'd lost it somewhere mentally. They, yeah, Wales had far more energy than, than Belgium and suddenly... Yeah, it's the consequence of playing with an unexperienced defence. Something sneaked into that team that, that wasn't wasn't going right. And uh, yeah, players got angry, players were frustrated because we were playing against a team with three at the back. That had been the issue in the first game against uh, against Italy playing three. Uh, they played with three at the back too. The Belgians couldn't go with that. So that was already in some players' minds. So, Again, three at the back, and we haven't prepared for that. Thibaut Courtois was uh, fu- furious. Yeah, he had worked under some big managers, and he thought that they weren't well prepared for the game. He said that in front of the camera. He just uh, just broke everything down. I think he killed off Mike Wilmot's, uh, yeah, not saying that he's just a rubbish manager, but that was the undertone of, uh, of, of the interview, that they weren't well prepared. It was a huge disappointment, definitely because it was Wales, which was uh, basically portrayed in Belgium as as Bales, because it was only Gareth Bale and uh, and yeah maybe Aaron Ramsey. But it was a team without stars, one that we should have got beaten easily with our players. But I'd spend a few two days in the in the Welsh camp too. For them, that was the once in a lifetime experience, and that what what they took into that game too. We we may, may we might lose, but we're going to give it all, and they gave it all, and that was something. What an epic. Ready for another one? Let's check in on Germany versus Italy. You can see that, that Germany are really up for this one, particularly after what happened four years earlier, but also they are now world champions. Well, something interesting happens before the game because Joachim Löw, who very rarely changes things, uh, decides that there's a huge tactical rejig uh, because he respects and fears the Italians so much. He mirrors their system and plays three at the back uh, for the first time in the tournament with Kimmich and Hector as wingbacks. And as you can expect, there was huge criticism even before the game had started. People saying, oh, Germany shouldn't change. Why is Löw doing this? They play... Uh, very well against Italy until late on where Italy come more and more into the game and you see the kind of fitness work that that uh, Conte had done before the game it starts to be rewarded and they go behind but they get back in it from a a kind of crazy penalty that uh, Jerome Boateng gives away like almost like he he jumps up uh, as a as a ball comes into the Germany box almost like he's he's ready to catch and dunk it I mean that's where his like hands are in, in in relation to his body and uh, the guy who steps up to take the penalty, of course, Pirlo's not there anymore. It's Leonardo Bellucci, the, the Juventus centre-back. I mean, the balls you need to basically stand up in a, in a game like that, quarterfinal, your team's 1-0 down, you've got maybe, what, 15 minutes to go, 
and you're a center back and he steps up and yeah Benucci's already had always had a high opinion of himself he basically thinks he is the pillow of defenders and takes its scores and the game goes into ex- extra time but nothing changes and so to penalties and then you have this just epic penalty shootout uh, which I think you know everyone who was watching it was, was had got to the end of their nails from from biting it had torn all of their hair out. I'm surprised that Conte didn't need another another transplant uh, in, in in that regard or more, more plugs. Uh, but yeah, truly truly epic shootout. So Germany's record up until this moment in international competition is perfect. They've never lost a shootout. But they give it a good goal. I mean, they, they try very hard to lose this one. Müller, Özil and Schweinsteiger miss uh, among the first five takers. Luckily for them, Zaza, Pele and Bonici also miss. Uh, Buffon is proving quite daunting, but I think the same is true of Manuel Neuer and the Italian uh, penalty takers. Simone Zaza, he, he, he takes 16 steps in his run-up, which seems to go on for 15 minutes before he actually gets to the ball. And then he skies it over. Parte lui, la rincorsa, andrà con il sinistro, la rincorsa lunghissima, il tiro fuori. Pallone sul fondo. And uh, he would describe it as kind of the worst moment in his life. Yeah, you know, com- completely didn't expect the kind of reaction it would provoke uh, on, on social media, how much that would impact on him and his mental health. Yeah, you know, he'd said that I'd never been good at penalties. I, 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 I hadn't taken a good one in years. With the score at 2-1, Graziano Pelle steps up to take Italy's fourth spot kick. If he scores, it's out of Germany's hands. I think the one that's really bad is 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 the one from Graziano Pelle. <laughs> but Pelle kind of, again, has a chance to, to, to kind of kill this game uh, and and makes this, this gesture as he goes up to the penalty spot to Manuel Neuer, of all goalkeepers, suggesting he was going to chip him. I mean, the, the, the balls of this man are just, again, incredible. Except unlike, unlike uh, Bonucci in, in normal time, he actually just skews his, his, his penalty woefully wide. And so to sudden death, where the men who weren't supposed to take penalties do rather better than the men who were. Italy score, Germany score, Italy score, Germany score, Italy score, Germany score. And then Damian misses the last one for Italy and Hector, who... Up until this point, I think has never taken a penalty in his life. Scores with one of the worst penalties of the shootout, but it's so bad that Buffon just can't adjust his body and it creeps in under his arm. And he just didn't legislate for penalty being struck so poorly. And that's what what gets Germany into the semi-final. Jonas Hector. Phew, everyone's still okay? We've still got one more quarter-final. It's Iceland, beloved by everybody, against the hosts, France. And there will be no shock result this time. When we went into that France game, it's not like we had any expectations. And I think at that moment, there was a clear difference in quality between France and England. But going up against France, especially on home home turf, and, and they were so confident, they were flying through games. It was such a intense start from 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 the word go really they went they went for it they went for 
for Iceland. They were so good. And, and maybe there was that syndrome of almost Iceland's final was that England game. And after that, I think it's so hard when you're a smaller team and when you beat a top team, it's so hard to go again, I think, because it's almost, this is it. This is the, the pinnacle of your tournament. And I think having back-to-back -back England and France, had they played maybe Ireland or Wales, who were still in the tournament in the next round, that probably would have been easier for Iceland. But to play the host, especially with the dynamic that we had now after that second half against Ireland in Lyon, it was going to be too up for them. And we just swooped them. Big, big, I mean, it was we could it, we could have won easily 7-0. It was that we were that good. No one expected to get anything from the game, although the uh, the conceding of five goals was a little uh, bitter pill to swallow. But look what they did. Look what they did. They shook the entire continent. They made the whole world sit up and take notice. Being able to participate for us Icelanders, you know, a, a country of 350,000 people, being able to go, you know, to the mainland of Europe and, and, and see your name up in lights, you know, see the Icelandic flag waving or, or signs with Iceland on it and, and stuff like that is something that Icelanders never thought that they would experience. It's the semi-finals, and Wales, who hadn't reached a tournament since 1954, are still here. Only Portugal stand between them and the final. I think one thing that, that worried Wales fans were, was the absences of Ben Davis and, and Aaron Ramsey, both of whom were suspended, having picked up yellow cards in that, that Belgium game. And, and I think that, that, was, that probably introduced a, a note of caution to sort of pre-match optimism from Wales fans. And then the game itself was was actually a bit of a damp squib from a Wales perspective, a bit of a letdown. This was certainly Portugal's most measured and most impressive performance from, most complete performance from start to finish. Yeah, completely controlled the game, really never really looked in danger. And uh, yeah, scored two goals, Ronaldo again, of course, coming to the fore with that kind of prodigious leap of his for the first goal. As a, you know, he does that so often, such a great header of the ball. And then a Nani turning in Ronaldo's shot for the second. And yeah, this was kind of a strange game in some ways because, you know, a semi final of a major championship, you know, so many nerves about. But from the Portuguese point of view, at least what I felt, and I remember people I was watching it with, didn't really ever feel too nervous. Uh, you know, Portugal were just you know, riding a wave of, of optimism at that time. It was in Lyon, the stadium wasn't full, it wasn't a particularly boisterous crowd. It was a very even first half, but very few chances at all. And then within eight minutes of kickoff in the second half, Portugal are 2-0 up. Uh, Ronaldo scoring with a ridiculous leap and suddenly Wales have got a bit of a mountain to climb and they never really threatened to get back into the game. There was no great onslaught of... Rui Patricio's goal, Wales just ran out of gas eventually. But like Iceland, there could be no regrets. No Welsh person will ever forget the summer of 2016 and their grandchildren will be hearing about it for decades to come. I remember walking around Lille on I think the day before the, the Belgium game, or perhaps the day of the game, and, and seeing a Wales flag that had Roche-on-Sea written on it. And like Roche-on-Sea is, is like where my dad lives. It's, you know, I spent sort of half my childhood, you know, little things like that, you know, and as a Wales, as a, as a Welsh person, as a, as a Welsh football fan, you're, you're not really used to, to seeing things like that. 
Clash of the Titans, France, Germany. It's the dream semi-final, really, because it's the arch rivals. They're the one who beat us in the quarterfinal in 2014, and then you can go back all those years, 82, 86, they are bogey team. Confidence was pretty high going into the game against France, but of course it was the hosts in Marseille. Very exciting atmosphere. Germany hadn't really played that well in the in the quarters against Italy. So yes, there was confidence, but not necessarily a sense of Germany will definitely blow this French team away. Germany had the law of the board, but the French were happy because again, the theme of that Euros is that France found their DNA, their identity, which was very much, it's better when we don't have the ball. Uh, or we score early, like against Iceland, we then forced Iceland to, to come out. But then in the last minute of injury time in the first half, Bastian Schweinsteiger gives away a really stupid penalty by handling the ball, and Griezmann scores and then sets the second half up, with Germany pushing even more, and then conceding a second to lose. So really, really unlucky really undeserved I think on the balance of play but kind of payback for what happened in 2014 for the French and Löw goes home and the team go home thinking this is a missed opportunity Griezmann was the hero, but it could have been Pogba, it could have been Varane, it could have been so many other players. It was good. It was really good. And it's a semi-final that stayed in memories for a long time because of the atmosphere, because of the win, because of who the opposition was. It's 2016. It's the European Championship final. 12 years ago, Portugal hosted the tournament and lost the final to the rank underdogs, Greece. Well, now they're the underdogs, playing the hosts, France. And very few people think they've got a chance. <laughs> Rightly so. They've played five games and they've only won once. If it wasn't for Ronaldo, they wouldn't have got out of the group stage. Also, some sort of biblical plague has visited the stadium. Someone forgot to turn the lights off. It's as simple as that. They, they had those, you know, the lights that you put on the pitch in every stadium, really, to keep the, you know, to, to give light to the, almost like sunlight to the grass. But the problem is they left them on all night, which, mean, which meant that the Stade de France was literally lit up the whole night, which then brought all those moths during the night. And we got to the stadium maybe three and a half hours before kickoff. And like, they were everywhere. But literally everywhere. It was I never seen anything like that before. You would open your mouth and like you almost got a moth in your mouth. It was ridiculous. Yes. One of them landed on my eyelid. <laughs> anyway, you know how I was saying that if it wasn't for Ronaldo, Portugal wouldn't have got this far. He's got such a great injury record. It's so unusual to see Ronaldo go off in any match, you know, let alone a big match. When when Payet first clattered into him. You know, it looked a bit of a rough challenge, but you kind of expect Ronaldo just to ride that and to, to shake it off. But it was evident quite from, from quite early on that it was quite serious. Because first of all, Ronaldo stayed down. Just even that is quite unusual. But uh, yeah, you know, the physios and obviously everyone in Portugal were trying everything they could to to get him in conditions to to carry to get, carry on playing. 
and he, he tried a couple of times, didn't he? Went down again, physios came on again, but yeah, it was just not to be. And it was, it was really a bit of a Hollywood moment. I remember a lot of people here in Portugal just saying they just couldn't believe it. You know, looking at Ronaldo, he was so distraught that one of the aforementioned moths we just talked about, we were completely infested the stadium, just kind of perched itself, if you remember, on his nose. And I think Ronaldo was just so absolutely kind of distraught and I suppose lost in his own thoughts that he didn't even bother swatting it away. And I think his injury so early on changes even more the, the, this, the scenario and the and the game plan where they play even deeper then. They, 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 I'm not even sure that that bothered attacking or having the ball. They just say, okay, let them come to us and then see if we can maybe do something on the counter. Anyone who says that they, you know, they knew it was Portugal's day or they knew they'd win, probably been a little bit disingenuous because, it, you know, France were, were really on top. Portugal were very much on the back foot. It was real backs to the wall performance. Certainly for, I'd say, the first 60 minutes or so. And it did really look like a match of time. Of course, as well as France just knocking on the door constantly. They were so sure of themselves that they were going to win this. Everything was looking like we were, we were going to win it. All the signs, all the all the narratives, all the little stories, ev everything. That maybe, maybe it's a slow start because the French are like, yeah, don't worry, we, we'll take our time. I think the game changed around 70, 80 minutes of normal time when Fernando Santos, who proved in this tournament that he just had a bit of a Midas touch when it came to substitutes, decided to bring on Eder, who prior to this game, so in the previous six games, had accumulated a grand total of 17 minutes. And so it was quite a big surprise when he called him, of course, you know, a striker when Portugal were, you know, looking like they're just having basically to park the bus to try and do anything to stop France scoring. But he brought on Eder. He also then brought on Joel Moutinho. And that really did change the game. If you, if you just look at this game from, I'd say, 75 minutes onwards and include extra time, then you'd probably have a different view of it because it wasn't, suddenly it wasn't utter French domination. We're not playing badly at all, but the more the game goes and the more you're going, okay, but extra time is no good here. And penalties are not good here, especially with a keeper like Rui Patricio who's getting more and more confident every time he saves something. And the more they stay in the game, the more confident they are as well and the more solid they are and the more easy the game plan is. Portugal because that's what they keep doing what they do and then at some point we will get tired we will make a couple of mistakes maybe and then they can they can have a chance or something or even take it all the way to the penalties you know this is some some a team that didn't beat anyone over 90 minutes in the all knockout stages it goes to extra time and that's when Eder writes himself into the history books this is a guy who came from uh, Guinea-Bissau, he was born in Guinea-Bissau, came to Portugal when he was three years old. His parents were so poor they couldn't care for him. For him. He had to go into a children's home where he lived until uh, you know his late teens. His father, meanwhile, was imprisoned for murder in a foreign country, so he only got to see him in prison from time to time. Eder himself, he'd had a very good start to his football career, but then his recent form had been so bad that Facebook uh, groups had been set up asking for him and not to be called up by Portugal. He was getting lots of grief from everybody, you know, quite disgraceful really in, in, in some senses. 
So you would just never guess that this would be the you know the all-time hero of, of Portuguese football. And yeah, when that ball broke to him, there's some great commentary, as you can imagine, different kinds of commentary going to, you know, leading up to this goal, but it kind of opened up to him. And so there's this very famous piece of commentary where it's just saying, shoot, Edda, shoot, shoot. And what happened? Edda just shot from 25 yards. Absolutely beautiful goal. You know, Daisy Cutter right in the corner really gave uh, Loris no chance. And then I think the pictures after it, absolutely incredible pictures you get of the Portuguese players just in absolute ecstasy. I swear to you, in the stadium I knew it was, it was over. And I don't even think we have a, a decent chance after the Adair goal because they, the punch to the head is too big. It's too, it's too big. And then you know that the players know that they've lost the final. You know that they don't have that feeling. They're so tired. There's, it, it was so unlikely that Portugal would score so unexpected in a way that they're completely knocked out. And they're there on the pitch, but they're not really there anymore. Portugal win. Ronaldo weeps and France uh, shrug it off and win the World Cup two years later. And that, ladies and gentlemen, was the 2016 European Championships and indeed the end of this series of Euro Stories. We've been working on this for three months, reading books, recording interviews, watching YouTube videos. We've been able to call upon some of the greatest names in European football media, all of whom have given up their time during a major international tournament to bring these stories to life. Your experts on this show were Stefan Algertsen for Iceland, Raphael Honigstein for Germany, Lindsay Hooper for England, James Horncastle for Italy, Tom Cundart for Portugal, Julien Laurent for France, Christophe Terreur for Belgium and Tom Williams for Wales. Euro Stories, the history of the European Championships was written and presented by me, Ian McIntosh, and produced by the tireless Abby Patterson. And as I record this voiceover, England are just 48 hours away from their first appearance in a final since 1966. Who knows? Maybe we'll be back in 2024 to remind ourselves how that turned out. The Athletic.